start talking. This is episode 268, a super deep dive. Uh, like I always say, we have a rough crowd. We're going to do a, something a little bit different than we've done in the past. And we're going to do a super deep dive on what's going on with the Russian-Ukrainian war. And uh, frankly, this is something that uh, we do all the time. So it's kind of like Groundhog Day here. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Now, normally we introduce our uh, people that are in the uh, our office here. We have uh, Roscoe. Yeah. And Curly Joe. Certainly. But they're not going to be involved today. Neither is Tiny Tim. Yes. And we're not going to have Ralph on. Oh. We're not going to have Leon Gasamascus. <laughs> Bubba's going to sit it out. Wow. And we're going to even set out Tarzan. Yes, we're going to sit everybody out today because we're going to talk a little bit about what? Red alert. We're going to talk about a red alert. So with that, let's get started with our intro and join us as we tape a major deep dive into what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Give you an idea of what we do here every day in our office, the type of analysis. And if you're not a client of Fixed Cost Financial, shame on you. This is the Paul Truesdell Podcast. Due to our extensive holdings, that of our clients and your host, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and that a conflict of interest exists. The information presented is provided for informational purposes. And now, Paul Truesdell. We're going to have a discussion today about what's going on with Russia, with Ukraine and the war. And let's just cover a couple of things. We've created, in essence, a war room for all practical purposes. We are tracking exactly what's going on. I think a lot of people have a complete lack of thorough understanding of the war. I think a lot of people are basically taking the uh, information from the three-letter media sources and they're drinking the Kool-Aid and distilling it down into memes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah all, all media, especially since Trump, but even Obama. Um, he was kind of the originator of the, the internet, using the internet to, as a as a tool for election and presidency. But yeah, every, everything's kind of been distilled into memes and yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a discussion. I'm going to be doing a, a lot of questions. Uh, you're going to do a lot of answers. We're going to kind of go back and forth. I will provide some of the historical context. You will do the same thing. So let's get down to it. Sure, let's do it. Is it a shock to you as a military expert on how the Russian military is performing? In broad strokes, yes. On a technical level, yes and no. There's some things that are shocking and other things that are not shocking. Um, for example, the resorting to extremely brutal uh, tactics that you really only saw in the Red Army or during um, the Chechen Wars. That doesn't surprise me at all. But I didn't think that it would get to that point this quickly, if, if ever. I figured the modernization and things like that would have professionalized their military in a way that was on par with the United States. At least that's the image they tried to portray to the world. And, you know, like all things, you know, no, that's uh, a very common phrase. You know, you're, you'll hear anybody in the military will, uh, will know this at heart. 
Um, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Um, but another aspect to that phrase is that, you know, nobody knows how awesome your super weapons are until you deploy them to the field and you show everybody how impotent they really are. And, you know, that's kind of one of the one of the fear items behind nuclear weapons is, you know, they're more of a political tool than anything because everybody's afraid of what could happen. But once you start wiping things off the face of the earth with them, then people just adjust. Humans are adaptable, and then that just becomes part of the new paradigm of how you view things. And that's that's one thing that, for a military that hasn't really had a lot of conflict, at least major conflict, since World War II, um, that's been a mystique. Nobody really knew for sure how good their military is, how good are these weapons, how good are their tanks. Like, we can look and, you know, you can analyze things, and you can do the spreadsheet analysis, and, you know, you can tabulate how many how many things somebody has and how effective they could be, but nobody really knows for sure until you actually deploy them to the field and they actually see whether they succeed or fail. And that's what you're seeing here. I think it's important to give some context. The average American is not that old, meaning that you have 20 plus years that we were in Afghanistan and Iraq. So 911 took place on September the 11th, 2001. This is 2022, so we're talking 21 years, right? Yes. And a lot of people don't realize there was a lull in between that. And before that, the Russians were in Afghanistan, and they basically suffered catastrophic losses there, really huge losses. The thing I want to cover very quickly, those of you who do not know history, and I'm not being mean about it, but if you don't know history and you're trying to apply what's going on today as if it went on in the past, you can't do that. So we have a lot more experience in the United States with killing people, going to war. If you go back to World War II, the Russians had their ass handed to them by the Germans. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But eventually, the war turned, and we kind of know what's going on there. But the point being is that from World War II until Afghanistan, what did they really do when it comes to military large-scale incursions? Not You really just don't have a lot. I mean, there are things that went on. There were revolutions that they had to put down. There's lots of stuff. Like, you know, you can fill a spreadsheet full of, full of, full of uh, you know, Points in time, you know, you can you can do the timeline and you can put things, but you don't have an actual deployment of, of assets to actually go and blow blow stuff up and kill people. Um, a lot of people have referenced in the past couple weeks uh, the what is it, the Sino-Russian or Russo-Sino, whatever the, the name is these days for that war they fought with China in the sixties. Mm-hmm. But has anybody ever looked at? Go do a Wikipedia search and go look at the casualties. Yeah, there's almost none. It's it's it, it would be a large-scale training accident on a scale of importance. It, it didn't mean anything. It was effectively a political war. And, uh, you know, same thing goes back to the Russian, uh, what is the the Russian, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but anyways, uh, the war they fought against Japan before World War One. Same thing. On paper, it, I mean, on, uh, on on in the political in the annals of political history and geopolitics, it's a big deal, and and it is. I mean, the Russians lost to the Japanese. That's a huge deal. But on paper, not really a big deal. Not a lot of soldiers committed on either side. 
not a lot of um, actual casualties one way or the other. Uh, it was a largely a very decisive thing done by the Japanese and the Russians um, tried to turn it around, but realized they couldn't because it was on literally the other side of the empire. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things people just don't have a good historical, like they try to compare things, but there's just not a lot of data points to compare it to. Right. Well, one of the things I want to tell everybody who's listening, listen, this is the way this works. Many of you have not been into a fist fight. I have been in, involved in countless fist fights because I worked in law enforcement back in the 70s and 80s into the first few couple of years of the 90s. But my point being is that most of the fist fights or most of the violent confrontations I had were not that big a deal. They weren't. You know, you get punched, you get hit, you do some wrestling around. That, that is what it is. Now, when you think of a prize fight, think of Mike Tyson and all that kind of stuff, you know, all the different fighters that we have fighting, what most of the fight is what? You know, they're just hitting each other, swinging. There's not a lot of things landing. What I want you to think about is when you have an outright war is when you have two boxers who are slugging it out. Fair enough? So I think you got to have some kind of a context. People think, oh, oh, you had this war, you had this thing. You know, like the, the War of 1812, the War of this, the War of that, and like had 10, 12 people die. I'm not, the 1812 was a little bit different. But my point being is that it's not that big of a deal for a lot of things. Skirmishes are viewed as war. You are re basically referring to in the, in the annals of history, a lot of skirmishes are wars. Today, they wouldn't even be even written about. But my point being is that what you have going on right now in Ukraine is this is a slug fest. This is a this is a bloodbath on both sides. You have two prize fighters who are just slugging it out. It's a whole different set of circumstances. Well, I I I, I think this the boxing analogy is good because it, it is a good example of tempo. There are very few boxing matches you'll ever look at in your entire life, even MMA, where they're just slugging each other like crazy and just going at it. That, that's very rare. And usually those fights are over in five minutes because everybody, ex you exhaust, you exhaust your, your energy and you're done. Um, you know, so, you know, both fighters are woozy and they're just falling on each other because they just don't have the energy to do anything. And you, you see this in MMA a lot. If, if anybody watches that type of stuff, because you know, the, the phrase is the, the fighters get gassed. They just, they run out of energy. And wars follow that same thing. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to uh, utilize all of your resources up front. But at the same time, that can be a tactical advantage if you're a big military force, or if you're a smaller one and you need to do something all at once or not at all. And if you've made a decision to commit, then you need to commit all of your resources and go all in, if that's your only option. Make sense? So. Yep. <clears throat> but but when you're looking at a battle and you're looking at the tempo of a fight, you know, as it goes on over now weeks and potentially months, you have moments of contact and then moments of, um, you know, in boxing, you're, you know, they're moving around. They're trying to positioning. They're trying to figure out and, and, and test each other for, you know, you'll see they'll throw the, the uh, I can't remember the name of what it's called, but anyways, the punch. Jab. The jabs, yep. the punches to try and figure out like, you know, is he going to defend against this distance? You know, what, what's, how strong is he? You know, you know, you're just looking for, for, for little tells and little pieces of information. And, and in a war, it's the same thing. Um, you know, there's maneuvering and logistics. 
and then there's then there's combat. Everybody glorifies the combat, but as Alexander the Great is famously quoted as saying that his logisticians today we would just call them uh, the guys in logistics. His logisticians are the are are an unfunny, a humorless bunch, because those are the guys who know that if they screw up, their heads are coming off first. And it's a te- it's a very very it's a it's a f- common phrase in U.S. military logistics um, officers. Everybody knows that. That doesn't mean that we literally lop each other's heads off when they fail, but it tells you the level of importance that everybody puts on logistics. Logistics win or lose wars. Always have, always will. And that is one of the most telling things here, is regardless of the amazing weapons and the people and the, the stuff, how do you get stuff to the battlefield? How do you get people? How do you get food? How do you get water? How do you get ammunition? How do you get information? Just out and distributed and, and, and not only to people, but also back. You know, because... <laughs> In the modern world, we don't just send stuff out and bury the dead in the field and then just keep on moving like, you know, the Roman legions would use to or something. You know, today, you know, you got to get your dead back. That's a common, you know, uh, civilized thing that everybody expects. Nobody expects to send their son off to war and then just you never see him again and you have no idea where he even died and it's just he disappeared like aliens abducted him. Um, you expect to at least get something back. I mean, I, I was reading about this the other day as, as a point of reference. In the Gulf War, um, a pilot of a plane, I can't remember uh, what, what specifically his role was, but anyways, he got shot, shot down, and he ejected, and nobody was ever able to find him. He died. Well, we found him in 2009, in the desert, somewhere in Anbar province in the middle of nowhere. We found him, brought him home. right. So the point is, is like there's, there's a lot more to the logistics and the stuff that goes on in the background, and that's a large part of that's that's the biggest part of the war. It's not just the people shooting each other and the tanks blowing up and all the cool stuff that everybody gets to put on CNN or Fox News or something. The, the real war is fought in the background, and that to me is the most important part to focus on because that's what the Russians are losing. So one of the things I want to do today is this is not about me. Let me make this really clear. It's not about me. It's not big man on campus, but I taught you how to fight. My father taught me how to fight. And I'm telling you, those of you who are listening, I know how to fight. And I'm telling you this because this is the way I judge things. I'm looking at things from my own personal experience. It's not just academic. It's not just the media. And I'm going to give you a couple quick things. When I worked in law enforcement, I always sat down and I did stretching, I did bending, I would get flexible. I did not eat for several hours before I went into work. I ate at work very lightly. I drank very lightly. I never drank soft drinks. I was very, why? Because if you're in a fight and your stomach's full, you're going to lose. I mean, that's just a bad set of circumstances. You, you just, you, you, you don't want to have, for example, rumblies in your tummy and then you, the next call you get, You've got to fight somebody and you're sharding yourself everywhere. I mean, there's some real legitimate things here. Every single day, no matter whether I was working undercover, if I was working as a detective, if I was working street crime unit, if I was working in uniform, I would practice over and over and over drawing my gun. Because sometimes I had a gun on my ankle, sometimes I had it on my hip, sometimes I had it on my back. You had different places depending upon what I was doing. But I had to make sure I had that muscle memory to pull the gun. We didn't have tasers but we did have nightsticks, okay? The problem with the nightstick, if the guy takes it away from you, he's going to beat you with it. 
we had mace. That stuff sucked, okay? Nobody carries that stuff anymore. So basically, when I started, you had your hands, you had your elbows. And how many times have I told you, when you fight, throw, throw an elbow, knock that sh- you, you fight to win immediately. And there was recently a fight, an MMA fight with two women, and this gal used her elbow and knocked the dog dirt out of this gal. What happened? Yeah, it was. Uh, it happened just this weekend. Um, a, I think... British fighter McCann, um, she did a, a move that almost never almost never even contacts because it's such a absurd thing. But she literally did a, a spinning uh, elbow and cold cocked the her her opponent right in the jaw, it's the same exact spot you would be looking for to get a nice good jaw punch to to, to knock somebody right out. She did it with her elbow and did a backspin. <laughs> And, and boom, out like a starfish, just totally out. So you're my son. You've been around a few decades. And when you were a little guy, I told you all about the fights I had and different things. And MMA was not the big a deal back then, right? I mean, but in essence, that's what I did. I know how to fight on the street. So what I want you all to understand about this is that what's going on in Russia is, to me, unbelievable. Because I'm watching a small guy who is physically fit, mentally sharp, who has all the tools that is kicking the butt out of a big guy. The big guy is fat, dumb, cocky, and is having their ass handed to him. And to me, that's what you got going on. Now, the problem is sometimes size matters, okay? So if you have... Always always plays a major factor. So if you have 100,000 soldiers rushing 10,000, the fact is... The 10,000 are probably going to lose. But how many of those 100,000 are you willing to lose? The Russian, the ratio is, is horrible. They're losing like maybe, what, 1 to 6, 1 to 10? We don't know for sure, but if you have 100,000 people and you kill 10,000 and you lose 30, 40, 50,000 of those people, guess what? It's called the law of attrition. You are going to lose. So let's talk now about the size of the, of the Russian population versus the Ukraine population then let's talk about exactly who is actually fighting in the Russian army. Yeah, so one thing to keep in mind, Russia really really separates for political and managerial purposes the country into three regions. You've got the hinterlands where it's sparsely populated, it's mineral rich, you know, I think, I think Siberia, um, just very rural, very rural Russia. That is approximately 40 million people. Then you have the next segment. It's approximately 40 million people. It's kind of like a, the thin inner band. It comprises Moscow. It comprises St. Petersburg. It's where all of the major metros are, um, Volgograd, places like that. It's where a lot of the industry and high-tech jobs and, and the centers of government are. And then you've got the next third, which is further west, which is the next 40 million people approximately. And... For like income purposes, you can think of the people farthest in the, in the the largest portion of the land, far east. They make you know they're the poorest. The people in the middle, they're the richest. And then the people in the west are not as poor as the people out east, but they're still pretty poor. They're Eastern European, generally speaking. Um, you know they're about on par with with maybe a little bit higher uh, per capita incomes, but. Generally speaking, very similar to Ukraine, Poland, 
you know, I, I know that's a, a big range, but but you get my point. It's 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 really so. If you think about it, you know, the managerial class lives in that middle band. That's where most of the wealth exists, etc. Um, let me jump in real quickly for for those of you to kind of give a per, per perspective of this. I want you to think of the United States for a moment, and I want you to kind of think back to high school when you probably the last time a lot of you ever learned any history. And that's not being mean, but it's a fact. Think of it like this. Think of the east coast of the United States, maybe 50, 100 miles from the coast. That's one band. And then take another band from like 100 to maybe 400 miles somewhere in it. That's another band. And I'm get, just giving me some ballpark numbers. And then imagine, again, as you know, go west, young man. When And then the whole place, all the way to California, is just rural. There's hardly anybody out there. I know there's Indians. We're not doing the PC crap thing. You get, but it's the same. It's, just, it's completely rural. There's people, but not many. That's what Russia is today, basically. Except it's kind of weird because you know they don't have the coasts, so it's you know it, it's just divided up differently. But they don't have the coast, of, but I mean, but conceptually, for yeah. people to understand, when you talk about Siberia, you talk about going, you know, from the middle part of the country all the way over to the Alaskan Straits. I mean, that thing is desolate. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's analogous to think of like 1850s United States. Yeah, yeah, that would be, that'd be good. And also, always remember where China is. And China buffers Russia there, Mongolia. And there's a they lot. They border. They border. There's a lot of minerals. There's a lot of resources up in that area that the Chinese have always had their eye on. That's something that's really, really important because in the context of geopolitical economic reality, not theory, if Russia stumbles hard here, it opens a huge door for China. So with that being said, will China support them? To what degree? There's a lot of things going on, but let's focus right now. What is going on with the actual war itself. Let's let's just begin to talk. Let's talk about their tanks. Uh, I want you to give well, everybody a, a real brief look what our crew setup is versus their crew setup and, and where the munitions are stored. Well, before I go to that, I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's good to give an overview of where we're at. Okay. Because I think a lot of people are obsessed with, you know, like you said, the memes and they don't know what's going on. And they're hyper-politicized to, to pick a side in this. Um, Don't do that, you know, folks. Don't th- pick a side. Look at the facts. But, but picking a side in this does not benefit anybody if you don't know anything. You know, you know it's a, an old phrase I remember you mentioning that your mother would say often that if somebody thinks you're stupid, just keep your mouth shut because... The moment you in prevents you from uh, keep your mouth shut in fear of uh, opening your mouth and removing all doubt that you are actually a moron, and you know it's true. Like just don't don't make an ass out of yourself. That's rule number one. But the point is, is that people don't really know what's going on, and they think you know people have all these memes in their head about you know I've seen some crazy stuff like uh, the. President Modi of India and Xi of China and Trump and Putin are like doing some secret operation to take out the deep state or something. Like people actually believe some of this stuff and it's very silly. But in reality, what's going on? Ukraine is a chess piece between the East and the West. There's there's no there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They get caught in the middle and they're gonna pay the price for it. But they're they're fighting very, very well. And they are given, being given lots of 
technical and um, informational support to be able to help them. But it is, it is important to remember from what I said previously that about the populations, Russia is three times population-wise the size of, of Ukraine. So Ukraine is not a small country by population. In the world, maybe it's you know mediocre size, but it's not small. Um, but you know they're, they're, the person that's attacking them is three times their size. The other thing to keep in mind is definitely go and if you if you don't have a good mental kind of perspective, go online, take a look at the maps, and compare. Ukraine is a huge country. It's absolutely massive. It's effectively the size of France, maybe a little bit bigger. And that's important to keep in mind because it's not even when you you know, when you compare the maps and you're doing all the, you know, the, 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 what I call like spreadsheet comparisons for, you know, who, who has an advantage and who doesn't, one thing that is always lost is people have like this view of, oh, Ukraine, it's like uh, Lithuania, it's like uh, Estonia. It's like, no, nah, it's, it's like five, six times bigger than those countries and there's, you know, almost 10 times more population in, in some cases. So size matters, and, and it kind of puts into perspective how ridiculous the assumptions are going into this. The, on the outset, as far as anybody can tell, based on all the data available to everybody, this was supposed to be done in three days. When you know what we know now, almost a month later, that is one of the most absurd decisions and or the biggest miscalculation in world history, in my mind, at least when it comes to warfare. Yeah, the decision here that it, this is going to be done in three days is very akin to the theory, and I said theory, this is important, that the Roman legions are coming in and we will just lay down our arms and we will surrender and everything will be fine and we will now become Romans. And it didn't happen that way. And if you look, if you know Roman history, they lost more than their fair share of battles, but the battles they won, there was a toll they had to take, but they also had to be incredibly brutal. You just didn't have people that rolled over. You had alliances that were made periodically, but this is, it's almost as if, did anybody ever go to military school? Well, I, I, you're right and you're wrong. I mean, in, in Roman history, you have a lot of instances where a, a city-state or something just rolls over and says like, they put up. They put up a a little bit of a resistance and basically sue for peace immediately. Right, but in but those then, cases, those were always superior forces. Like, we're just not going to win this thing, or you just, or the people don't have the they don't have the will, will of, or the resources right. or something. But the point is, like that does happen a lot. It doesn't happen in modern cases, though. It, that type of thing very rarely happens. When's the last time it's happened? Well, it happens all the time, but it happens out of your view. It, it it's diplomatic wins and losses. Exactly. And, and those are, it used to, there used to be a time when you would go to war, you'd say, we're going we're gonna to come and invade you, and we send all your troops to your city, and we just camp out, and then we use that as a way to force you to make a decision and capitulate. And that's what Putin was trying to do by staging his 120,000 troops for, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing air quotes here, exercises. That's what that was about. That, that was a classic, we're going to, put troops at your border, and we're going to threaten you and try and get you to submit. No, I agree with you on that. But here's the thing that I would disagree with you on, that, on is that with today's modern technology, when I know 
that people who are normal everyday people are fortifying, building things, blowing up bridges. They are they are getting ready to do it. But more importantly, everybody in the east in the in the west the United States, they're they're flooding. They either have absolutely no intelligence or they didn't use the intelligence that they were gathering to go, you know, we need to think this thing through. I mean, I just, I, I'm just befuddled. Well, so you're saying a whole bunch of things most people have no idea about. Um, in December, the United States, probably even before then, started telling the Ukrainians that the Russians are planning to invade you. Whether it was feigning ignorance or it was... I'm I'm pretty sure it was feigning ignorance at this point. The Ukrainians at different times said things like, you know, oh that's preposterous. They would never do that. Blah blah blah. You know, and it's kind of like a you know chicken little type thing. You know, the United States has a has a rough track record in the past few years as being able to uh, tell our allies things that they can actually bank on, and a lot of people don't trust us. But you know, the reality is, is we were we were 100% right about all this. Our intelligence was very accurate. There's been a myth in. Intelligence and political circles for since the Cold War, that the Russians are really good at intelligence and they do infiltration and blah blah blah. And the United States doesn't know anything, and we we look at Russia like as a black box and we just don't know what's going on. That obviously throughout this entire conflict has been proven totally and one hundred percent false. That we know exactly what's going on and we let stuff happen to make people look like a bunch of fools. It's going to cost lives, but that's unfortunately just how. Real politics goes sometimes. You yeah, know, and you it, have you have to play, you have to you, you have to be very Machiavellian and sit back and let people do, you know kill people and blow stuff up to make a point. And so the Ukrainians, whether they took us seriously and it was feigning ignorance or not, it, make of it what you will. We've been telling them that this was going to happen for a while. And what you saw is starting around February, the beginning of February, they started ramping up in a dramatic fashion their national defense volunteer groups, um, training civilians on how to do things. There were a lot of absurd videos, and I remember at the time seeing some of them thinking, you know, this is just like silly propaganda, but it was, it was, it was more real than I think people gave it credit for, even myself at the time, um, of soldiers and other people training civilians on just basic stuff, you know, how to avoid getting shot at if you're trying to move through a city that's been captured, building clearing tactics, how to use weapons, stuff like that. Again, like I said, a lot of it was a very high-resolution, well-shot video of, you know, like civilians doing stuff on CNN. But, you know, the reality is is that was a, a microcosm of what was going on in the entire country is what we've now seen. Now hold for a second. One of the things I want to emphasize to those who are listening, Paul and I engage in something that we talk about all the time. It's called variable change. And we did this for COVID. We do this all the time. Based upon the information we have today, this is what we think. And then we do a forecast based upon a percentage. What we don't use is words. We don't say, oh, there's definitely going to be a nuclear war. What we'll say is, well, based upon the totality of the circumstances right now, we probably got a 70, 75% chance that somebody might throw off a nuclear weapon. Doesn't mean it will, doesn't mean it won't. We, you, you have to... You have to have a, a, per, a percentage based upon the information you have currently. So when this thing started, just like with COVID, as more information came out, as our resources that we have across the world began coming in, we've really looked at things differently and gone, yeah, we're not that stupid here in the United States. 
So it's kind of like need to know <laughs> if I'm going to do a search warrant. I'm not going to tell uniform patrol and we didn't tell civilians because they have family and they tell people and, you know, we don't want to get killed. Surprise is a big factor. So need to know, very important. Now need to know is out the window because it is occurring. Now we look at what's going on and now you be, you change. So continue. Yeah. The, so the, you know, the reality is, is on the ground, the civilian population, um, the, the 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 I would say the Putinist worldview and the Putinist perspective on Ukraine is entirely false. Anybody who I mean, and, and we watched it. I mean, we 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 we've listened to or read the the, the printouts from his speeches and things. And at the outset, it's like, okay, well, we can kind of understand. Oh, there's a humanitarian crisis here. They want to go in and protect and shield these people from this war that's been going on for all these years. That you know. As time goes on, the more we learn, more people explain things in intricate detail, and you find out that, oh, yeah, for all intents and purposes, the Russians basically started it. Um, so now they're, oh, hey, we're the saviors of the of the crisis that we created. It's like, you know, and, standard and they, pattern throughout And they history. did a great job. Everybody's a Nazi. Everybody is related to Hitler. Everybody's a mobster. Oh, we've got all these. Oh, they're drug addicts. They're drug addicts. Oh, the Ukrainians are just, they're the, the scum of the earth. You got you, you to gotta sit back if you... If you remember what was going on in our media yes. and in the Republican Party, more than anywhere else, it was yeah, mind-boggling. Yeah, in conservative or Trumpist like political circles, the stuff has been amazing. Which, if, I'm, if George Soros says he supports the Ukrainians, that means the Trumpists have to support Putin. Who thinks like that? But that's what we're dealing with. It just is what it is what it is. Yeah, it's it's a it's a symptom of the of the uh, total, you know, two poles of, of political theory that have developed in this country. You know, and, and to be totally honest, I mean, is largely led by by Trump and, and his and his uh, way of politicking um, has created you know two polar opposites. Where if if you're not on one side, you're going to be on the other, and there's no room for compromise in the middle. Even though that's where 40% of the population lives as someplace in between. But that's all you hear. Nobody nobody interviews the people in the middle. All they talk about is the two competing sides in each time. So anyways, point is, is that, you know, you, you saw a lot of, uh, let's say, re reaction or contrarian type perspective. You know, if X happens and X person is of party Y, then I'm going to, I'm going to do the opposite. And, you know, you just, it's, I, it's nothing more than just, it's lazy. Like people who think that way, it's just purely lazy. Like you don't understand what's going on. You're better off just saying, I don't understand and move on. Yep. So, but in, in, in Ukraine, you know, the realities on the ground was very different from the PR atmosphere that the Russians created. And honestly, that's probably the, one of the biggest takeaways from this entire conflict is the global PR campaign that Russian foreign intelligence and their organs have been able to create and influence a lot of people that should not be easily influenced. And if I were to if I were to say the long term consequence of this is, you see a lot of people saying, "Oh, there's oh the Russophobia and all this stuff," you know, it's terrible. But there's an element of it that is kind of important because there is a lot of Russian foreign intelligence um, 
influence. I may not, it might not even be agents and like all this spooky Cold War stuff as much as it's people read stuff on the internet. They don't know where it's coming from and they just like believe it. Well, you a good see- example is a huge number of people, especially in the kind of more right wing and more hardcore left wing. It goes in both ways. Um, influence influencers, let's just say for, for simple terms um, in these circles, use sources from Russia. So things like RT and Sputnik and things like that. And it's obvious when you start looking at like, oh, RT employs like this person who's regarded by some people in the media as like, oh, he's a far right, you know, Nazi type affiliated person. And then they also employ somebody who is a literal card carrying member. They go to the to the American Communist Party. And both of them are giving reports and they're doing video things. It's like, can you not see what's going on here? Well, just let me like they're 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 just they're stirring up dissident activity yeah. to to get crazy ideas into the population more than they're not trying to feed you a, a logical narrative. They're trying to feed you craziness. Well, let's take, for example, three people that are well-known, maybe not to people under the age of 30, but you have Dennis Miller, a long-term comedian, absolutely hilarious, and he used to run around with who? Bill O'Reilly. Yes. And But he had his own comedy. He had his TV, movie career, the whole nine yards. So you got Dennis Miller. You have Jesse Ventura, yes. wrestler, who became governor of, of Minnesota, an independent uh, he preceded uh, Schwarzenegger, or, or did, would he follow him? I don't remember if he followed. I think he preceded him. That doesn't make. I don't recall. Doesn't make any difference. And then you have Stephen Fatboy Seagal, right? <laughs> yes. Who's like you know he just he he slowly moves. But here's a point: they are all well known. Jesse Miller are on RT. Uh, uh, Stephen went to probably to avoid uh, paying taxes. He starts. He goes to Russia, right? So. One of the things I want you to say, uh, you said something that was absolutely brilliant. And, and folks, when he said this, I literally sat back and just like, oh, my God, you're right. You said something like the Democrats were right about Trump, but for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and it, and it, I thought that was holy. That was so insightful. I want to say we have a friend, but his name is Mike. Mike has always said two things. People, they're the worst. I love that phrase. And the other thing is a Facebook like, a like, a like is not a vote. So sometimes, you know, the, the obvious is right in front of you. So why don't you pick that up? I mean, it's like, you know, Trump literally, <laughs> this well, Q, QAnon, all this crap that's gone on. And, and people just, folks, this is really tough stuff to get your head wrapped around because we're not stupid and we've, <laughs> we've struggled with it. Remove Trump from the equation, right? And look at what the Democrats, specifically the rabid very political Democrats were saying the entire Trump was time. Trump was in office. They were just obsessed about Russia, 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 Russia. Mm-hmm. And and the reality is, is like you know, you look at Trump and you look at the FISA warrants that the Obama administration was able to get on him. Everybody just as- assumes, oh well, you know, it will, most people don't know this. The head of the FISA court, the person who authorizes or, or denies. A warrant is the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, so it would be John Roberts. So people think, oh well, John Roberts, oh he's he's a he's part of the cabal and all this. You know, they come up with crazy, just jump to conclusion on, you know, like you said, you know, X person is associated with Y person, therefore they're bad. 
the thing that became very obvious to me, I never understood what that was about. And my assumption was always that there had to have been something there, but it, like, it doesn't make any sense. Now it's super obvious to me. There had to have been some legitimate intelligence that led somebody of his stature, specifically of his prior political affiliation, regardless of whether you like Trump or not, to authorize a literal domestic, a secret domestic spying program on one of the two major candidates for president, specifically somebody who is in, you know, theoretically your ideological court. That is totally messed up, and that wouldn't happen if there wasn't something serious there. Was anybody ever able to produce what that thing was? Hell no. Absolutely not. And I wouldn't expect it, because just the circumstances. I mean, you know, the, in, the, in the intelligence community, like, sources and methods, nope, can't talk about it. You know, it's, it's kind of a cop-out, but the reality is, is sometimes you have to keep these things quiet because if you do blow it, it's a big deal. Well, they had a TV show called Dallas, Who Shot J.R., and that same thing happened in 1963, Who Shot Kennedy, and we still don't even know. So Exactly. I mean, yeah. I'm being very blunt about it. Yeah. By so, the way, for, so for those of you who don't know, I actually lived in Dallas in 1963 and have an inter, a, a very deep knowledge of what occurred at that time because of my dad. So, you know, to me, that makes sense now. It's like, but, but my point in general is that what if they were right for the wrong reasons? You know, they, they, they wanted to be right. They wanted to be so right that, oh, it was Trump and he's a Russian agent or something crazy like that. There's no way in hell that's possibly true. Could he have been influenced by people who were? That's Could the he, key. Or, or people in like, you know, if you, if you look at concentric circles, you know, one or two layers out from the people who do influence him Right? Like, that's obvious. Like, and if you're a foreign power, of course you want to be able to influence people who are influencing the president. That's obvious. And just so you folks know, my son and I, but before he was even born, I have talked about this concentric circle of influence in politics. Many of you are completely unaware. And I encourage you to do the research. The Clinton administration, Al Gore, all of the atomic laboratory secrets, all the different things that were going on with the Chinese. There are people who are paying people to get near people to influence decisions. And so it's not just in the press. It's in the halls of Congress. It's in the halls of the White House. It's everywhere. It's in business. It's, it's in everywhere. business. Yeah. And we have an open society. It's capitalistic based. It's, an, it's a corporatocracy, but it is what it is, what it is. But it happens everywhere. It happens in China, it happens in Germany, it happens in Russia. It's people with groups of people influencing people. It's just all there is to it. Call it networking. <laughs> it really winds up becoming this cabal of networking. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to, uh, I remember one of the most uh, amazing few seconds of television I've ever seen in my entire life was uh, the show Succession, if you've seen it. Um, definitely worth a watch even though it is very crude. Um, the father is talking to one of his children about, uh, you know, they're fretting about a government investigation. And, the, and, you know, the father's calm. He doesn't really care. It's, he, you know, water off a duck's back. Couldn't give less of it. Couldn't, couldn't care less. And the kid's freaking out. And he tells him, it's, the government is just people and people are politics. It's not a big deal. I'm not worried about it. And it's, it's, it's something that, is so it's just it's a an insightful nugget that you get out of just you know brain dead television um, because it's true P all people people are politics 
it, you know, everything is politics when it comes down to it. And, and every, what's a business? Just a bunch of people. What's the government? Just a bunch of people. I mean, I always make this joke that, oh, you're so upset with the government. Okay. Now convince, you know, 50, 51% of the population to be as pissed off with the government as, as you are. And just 51% of the population just go forward the next day, wake up, and just mentally the government doesn't exist. Because the government isn't real. It's some properties. It's some guns. It's some tanks. It's some buildings. It's a whole bunch of stuff that, at the end of the day, it takes people to operate. If people don't believe in it, it doesn't exist. It's a figment of it's it's a collective hallucination. Right. And so the point is, is everything's politics. So that means that things transcend cultures and places in the world. So all these things they apply no matter where you go. It just kind of depends on whether you can figure out how to model it and understand it because every culture is very different. Yeah, every single every single group of people no matter who it is. And then when I was a cop in Tampa, we were sitting around the roll I was in uniform and we were at a, a roll call one day and and I made a comment I said you I don't remember what the situation is. I don't want to give the names of the people in Tampa. It was a gang of people that we were dealing with. And I said, "You know, you do realize we're just a gang." <laughs> And everybody was complaining about the housing projects, how we weren't getting cooperation. We had a bunch of murders that were going on. I said, but you can understand, we're just being, we're viewed as an occupied force. We're a gang that comes in and then we leave. Okay, we're there for 10 hours and then another group come in. It's just, it's, it's a series of gangs. We all have the same colors, but the real gangs live there. And so, you know, how do you crack that? And, oh, we're not a gang. I can't believe you said, yeah, everything's a gang, a group of people, define the word gang. But it, it, the actual basis in which people function, the way it works, is the same everywhere. I think the key thing is, are you willing to use violence against someone to get what you want? And to what level of violence are you willing to use it? Specifically, death and utter destruction yeah that's it so so to reel all the way back out of the rabbit hole um we are you know almost three we three weeks and change into russia invading ukraine and it's something that they wanted to do in approximately three days was their goal they have all this magical military gear staged at the border they've been saber rattling for for the better part of you know at least this time in this instance, you know, the better part of two months, uh, the Ukrainians are literally standing there, you know, whipping the bird, telling them, you know, basically go back to where you came from. Um, at least publicly, they don't believe our assessments of, oh, the Russians are going to invade. They think it's just yet another instance of Chicken Little. Behind the scenes, they obviously took it seriously, but that's the public persona. You know, there's, as uh, what is it, a... Uh, I think it's somebody in the Obama administration. You've got your public and your private uh, opinion or, or position. Um, so now we're three weeks and change into this, and for the better part of the past two weeks, the Russians have been completely bogged down by the English, American, and other defense intelligence reports that are published on a daily basis. And really what you see is you see a, a country with a supposedly, you know, number two in the world prestigious military on paper has all of these magical capabilities that is stuck in the Cold War. 
they're stuck in the Cold War in many, many, many ways. But I think the biggest, re- the biggest way that they're stuck in the Cold War is corruption. Arguably more so than the than than any than the worst that ever was during the Cold War. I mean, I'm personally of the opinion now that I think the Soviet military during the Cold War was a much more effective fighting force, regardless of uh, uh, you know whether or not it was actually used. I, I think you know the average soldier was much better trained, actually cared. Um, where today, you know, the reality is is it's a uh, it's a volunteer. I mean, it's a it's a volunteer force of, of of a few, and it's a conscript force. Whether it's literally con- conscripted, which there are conscripted troops there, but they're also you know conscripted out of necessity, meaning they don't have any job prospects, they don't know what to do with their lives, they need to do something, and they that's the career they chose. They don't really care one way or another. It's a paycheck, and it's it's a it's an institution of people that they can be around that keeps them from becoming a drug addict or something. And that's a really dangerous place to be in when you have a military because they don't seem to have a purpose. Um, the, the, the large mass of the force doesn't obviously doesn't care. And we started learning this the first week into the war when we saw things like $25 million anti-air systems that are on effectively like a big five-ton truck, like you would see uh, like a, a bit like in the military, everybody has a, can, can conjure up a mental image of the big supply trucks. Well, this is like a big supply truck plus a little bit, and they put a big anti-air system on it, but it's got rubber wheels, you know, big, big wheels, but rubber wheels, and it's designed to be a mobile anti-air system. No, stop. Called, Here's the thing. Hang on. The thing is that the media is going to report, oh, look, the Ukrainians captured this vehicle. Yes. And that's where it stops. Yes. So Wait, it's the vehicle. But not the case, is it? Yes. Yeah, so, so the vehicle I'm talking about in specific, uh, for anybody who actually knows what I'm talking about, is the Panzer anti-air system. The Russians don't have a ton of them. They're a fairly new creation uh, within the past 10 years. And they're very expensive. They cost like 25 to $30 million equivalent. Um, highly specialized piece of equipment that on paper gives you a huge advantage for protecting your assets and supply convoys. It's, a, it's one of those e- weapon systems that our people would raise their eyebrows and go, ooh, that's, yes. a, that's a big deal. It's not, but it's not an unexpected piece of equipment in the modern Russian military at Correct. all. We see multiple images of them either being destroyed or in the case that I'm referring to, this one is stuck in the mud. So the question is, how does a $30 million, $25 million piece of equipment get stuck in the mud? I don't know. How does a multi-million dollar piece of equipment get stuck in the mud? Who in the right mind would stick something in the mud? So for reference, you know, one of the, as far as combat-capable, deployable aircraft in the Russian military, this thing costs as much as one like Su-35, which would be a brand new effectively you know, top-of-the-line aircraft. Right. That is that is a huge, very expensive piece of equipment you don't want to leave behind. Nope. So why is it stuck in the mud? Well, a lot of people ask this question. What, did it break down? Like, what's going on? Whatever. These things, basically, the reality is everything takes maintenance. And the devil was in the details on this vehicle in specific, but it was a good 
microcosm of the problems that are afflicting the entire Russian invasion force. This vehicle had dry rot on its wheels. What did it have on its wheels? Had dry rot. Dry rot. <laughs> yes. So if, you have, for those of you who don't know what dry rot is, look it up. It had dry rot on the wheels of a twenty-five to thirty million dollar advanced weapons system. That is just unbelievable. So basically what that tells anybody who knows military logistics and maintenance programs, um, that means that the vehicle was effectively left in a parking lot for the better part of the past year, at minimum. The important things on big vehicles like this, based on some uh, open source intelligence that I read, was that uh, big vehicles like this that have... um, Tires, they're just giant rubber tires. And the reason they're big, you know, like everybody sees modern vehicles and they have these slim, low-profile tires and whatever. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for it. Modern cars, they have better suspensions. They have all this stuff that makes a better ride. And you don't need big wheels to to suspend, to reduce shocks and stuff from the road like you used to. And the benefit of that is, is the tires are smaller and there's other geometries that have to do with making it better. Plus, it just looks better, right? Um. But on big vehicles, they still have, especially military vehicles, they still use these giant tires. And the reason for it is, especially vehicles like this, they have a uh, basically switch-operated tire inflation and deflation system. So when you get into some sand or rough terrain or mud, you deflate your tires so you have a lot wider surface to drive on. So now you've, you've increased the actual surface area of your tire potentially as much as 30 and 40%. That enables you to get more traction and get out of a slushy kind of environment because at the end of the day, you're driving a big, heavy vehicle. The problem is, is these guys did that and basically the tires fell apart. So they couldn't get it out. And then this was this may have been in an area where it was sketchy as far as the ability to secure, like getting tanks in there and you know doing retrieval of the vehicle. So what did they do? They just abandoned it. For such an expensive piece of equipment, like I said, that really shows you if you can't maintenance, if, 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 a, if a military with a budget the size of the Russian military and the, the amount of equipment and the prestige, before this event anyways, of the Russian military can't keep something as simple as the tires and inflation system of their... of a very expensive piece of equipment like this maintenance, if they can't keep that maintenance on schedule, that kind of tells you how uh, how dedicated everybody is, how much corruption there is. That is such a low-level thing. You send, some, you send some guys that do maintenance out to go move the truck around once a month, inflate, deflate the tires, inspect them, make sure there's no leaks, check the rubber hoses that do the inflation system, you know, you just basic maintenance stuff. Yeah, and look, so I'm not a fireman. I've never worked in that area. But one of the things people will always complain about is, whoa, they're driving the big trucks around. They're just wasting. No, you have to play with your toys. You have to get things and drive around. I want the fire truck to break down on the way to Publix rather than breaking down on the way to a call. Absolutely. I mean, especially if the call's to me. So, you know, these things are real. This is why you go to the range and you practice. This is why you 
You do strength, endurance, and flexibility training, as I do every day. You eat your natural nutrition, hydration. You do everything in moderation. You don't break it, but you need it when you use it. There are reasons why I preach what I preach on this podcast, and it applies to war. It applies to the preparation for war and all aspects of it. So let's continue with this, and then I want to move into the tank thing, because I think that's just a hilarious thing. So it goes back to what you said at the very beginning. You know, you you have to be, to summarize what you said at the very beginning of our discussion is you have to be good at the fundamentals. If you're not good at the fundamentals, you can't do advanced things. Nope. If you don't know your multiplication tables and you can't do basic arithmetic and you can't do basic algebra, you're never going to design a bridge, at least a sophisticated one. Right? You're never going to be a good field engineer if you if you struggle if you struggle with your multiplication tables. Nope. And that doesn't mean that it can't be done, but that means that when you get 100 people out there, things are going to get foobarred really quickly. Yep. And that's what you've got. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, 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 really, that's really like the thing that was very eye-opening to me was when I saw that, I was like, oh, well, if they can't get this, ve- if you can't salvage a, 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 you know, a vehicle worth tens of millions of dollars, then... I can see it if the essence of time matters, but something like this you wouldn't. Not when you have like dozens of them in the entire military, and it's something that's of that much strategic value. You know something's really really bad there. Then you start to just kind of extrapolate that out, and you start analyzing other things, and you start to realize, oh, of all the Russians that I've seen killed or captured or all the equipment and everything, where are the guys with, where are in in the U.S. military, you'd call them the the high-speed, low-drag guys, where are the guys with the where where's, where are the red dots on the guns? Where are the infrared lasers? Where's the night vision? Where are the thermal optics? Where where is all this equipment? Well, let me start. Where, where are the new guns? Where are the, the the helmets with night vision mounts? Like we can go on and on and on with all this stuff, and all you see is you see big field armies with minimal equipment. So let me stop you there. One of the things, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, again, I'm not being mean, but I know that most of you, when you see these pictures of these dead Russians, no matter whatever, you see the blood, the guts, you see the arms, that's what you see. We don't do that. We're looking at the patches. We're looking at the equipment. We're looking at the faces. If you think, for example, every Russian looks like a white Russian, you're wrong. So many of these people have Asiatic these Chechen, they're Siberians. You've got Chechens. You've got Russians that look like they're from Sweden. You've got guy. You've got a whole cacophony of, of different types of people because Russia is, you know, contrary to propaganda and things that are out there. You know, everybody wants to show you, you know, the super attractive, you know, white-looking Russians. But the reality is, is Russia is a country of 140 million people, probably 40 million of which are you would call multi-ethnic of various stripes. And, you know, what do you see dead in the field? You see, like, a larger mixture of more ethnic people. Well, then, so what's going on? Well, I mean, we can all do some basic assessments. These are the bulk of the people that make up their military. Why? Because the country's old. There's not as many young people. Rich white kids, rich people who have capabilities, guess what? They're not sending their kids to the military. They're getting them the hell out of there. They're going to Sweden. They're going to Germany going to college, you know, so you just don't see as many of that. But where you do see it is you see it in the leadership. 
officers, generals, colonels, lieutenants. And who's getting killed. And you're seeing a ton of these guys getting killed. So you're having, let's just say, senior um, white Russian commanders, generals, leading people, and you can extrapolate a bunch of things. I would not say that this is a group that's undertrained no. or undercapable. They're just misled. They, they, they weren't trained. There's, 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 here's the thing. The most important. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. It is a mess. And, but the most important thing is morale. You can have an untrained mass of idiots, but if they can take orders, you can get stuff done. There's no question about it. A perfect example of that is, is Ukraine. Like, look at the Ukrainian defense forces. Um, I saw a, an account from an American who was there training in a, air quotes, unofficial capacity, uh, local d- territorial defense forces. And this guy said that the Russians are fighting worse than the Taliban did in Afghanistan. And his example was very insightful. He said... He has about 40 people that he's trained, and one of the first questions that he asked this group of people is, has, have any of you ever been shot at before? It's kind of a basic assessment as to yeah. what, who, who should be in charge, because if, if there's a guy that's been shot at before, he, he probably needs to be, uh, he, uh, uh, he, needs to be, he needs to have some type of leadership role. Yeah. The answer from everybody was no. But upon first contact in the field, Mind you, this guy said that he, he's in a training capacity only, but yet he, he's able to tell you some stuff from the field. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a funny, it's a funny thing. But anyways. Yeah, let's not go there. But on, upon first contact, he could see Russian soldiers basically attempting to flee the moment they were getting shot at. And these guys who are doing territorial defense, they were more willing and following orders and they weren't, you know, for lack of a better term, shaking like a leaf and looking for a place to go dump their bowels. The Russians were. The Russians are supposedly a very well-trained, organized, well-oiled machine of, you know, the big bear is going to come and invade you and take the whole place over, you know, Cold War communist style. That's not what's happening. So, you know, th- there's psychological effects there, but the important part is, is you know, the morale plays a big part in that. If, if you are, if you are, protecting your homeland, you're protecting your home, your, your neighborhood, your, your city, your state, whatever, and you're with people that also are of the same mind, you may not have the skills, but at the end of the day, it's like, where else am I going to go? Well, here's the thing. Let me so, jump yeah, versus but, being the guy who's like, I was conscripted. I don't really want to be here. Um, I, we didn't bring as much equipment as we thought we should because this was supposed to be over in three days and they wanted us to pack our uniform, our, uh, our parade uniforms. Oh, this is huge. And I'm getting shot at. They didn't tell us this was going to happen. They said that they were going to invite us in with, with, with offerings of cake and, and, and flowers. And yeah, we you, were there and to protect them from the evil Nazi Bandera people who are oppressing uh, Russian language speakers and are slaughtering uh, pro-Russian people by the thousand. They get there. The locals are yelling at them in Russian. Mind you, half the population of Ukraine speaks Russian primarily. Half the population speaks Ukrainian and Russian. It's still these people live in Russia during the or in Ukraine during the Cold War. They lived under the USSR. They don't not speak Russian. It's a and form they, of and Russian. And they don't want to go back to that. <laughs> but the key is is 
It's a former Russian territory. Yep. So any of this nonsense about all oh, the Russian language being oppressed is like no. They have their own dialect. They have their own Slavic dialect. It's called Ukrainian. It's very different on paper. In reality, it's it's a weird mix. I mean, when, uh, at least linguistically, it's it's very it's similar, but it's different. Like it's hard for Americans who only speak English to understand. But let me jump but, in. That you have New Yorkers, you have Jerseys, you got South of Miami, you got uh, people in the Cajun Louisiana area, you got Valley Girl, and you got up in in uh, the the Seattle area. Everybody speaks English, but it's all a little bit different. Uh, it's. It's more different than that. But, I understand, but I'm trying to get people to get an idea of what's going on here. But the point is, is like this is what they're sold. They're sold that this, they're being oppressed. They're there to save them. They're coming in as liberators. And they have people yelling at them in Russian, telling them to, you know, go back to where you came. You know, they're, they're being shot at. <laughs> All these things, they were not prepared for this. And, you know... Yeah, it's just it 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 sucks to you know when you start to empathize with these Russian soldiers. It's like they were literally just lied to, and it and it seems as though all the way up and down the military structure, they believe this crap. They believe that you know the country is being run by drug-addled Nazis, and there's like all of this insane propaganda. When the reality is, it's like yeah, I mean, sure, we have you have some wacky elements in society. Uh, they have a huge animosity for Russia because of the Cold War, because of the Soviet Union, because of uh, lots of things. Like there's, it's it's a complicated area. There's lots of there's lots of cultural complications. But they were sold a giant bill of goods that just was not true. And and the, what I alluded to a minute ago that you picked up on was one of the things people have realized is this: these early these, the, the people who invaded Ukraine on, in the early days, one of the things that was in all these people's vehicles was parade uniforms, like dress uniforms. You know, the berets, the fuzzy hats. It's the Roman the, Legion approach, yeah. The, well, they weren't wearing them. Oh, no, 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 I understand that. vehicles. I, no, I, that, I want, yeah, I understand. I want people to understand. It's, we think we are going to, it, listen, I guess maybe I'm just a little bit older. I just remember all of the things when Patton marched in, when Rommel, you had these, you know, we've we've taken over sure. Paris, we've liberated. Even when the Germans went through Paris, I mean, absolutely, yeah. you know, you do these parades and and they got cleaned up. I mean, I think they really thought, as you said, they had the Cold War, World War II, superior force. We're going to have a little bit of a skirmish, and then we're we're coming in. We're the liberators. It's like, here's the thing, folks. There are places in Chicago. When Trump said we're going to send the feds in and get crime under control, it's never going to happen. Because even though my neighbor killed my son, I'm not going to, we're still going to stick together because in our hood, that's the way it is. You have people, for example, the Ukrainians are overwhelmingly Christian. It's a homogeneous society, overwhelmingly. In Afghanistan, in Iraq, when it comes right down to it, people stick together. Irish, the, the Scots, I mean, we could go forever on this sort of thing. If you think you're going to waltz waltz into somebody like this and just you're not going to get a, a fight back, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. So continue on with what you were saying there. Yeah, so they brought their parade uniforms, which indicates nothing other than they expected to come in, shoot some, shoot a couple magazines, 
scare some people, submit the, you know, more specialized forces of the Ukrainian government, uh, arrest, I mean, they, the Russian government, they said it themselves, they wanted to put Zelensky and his, uh, and his other government officials uh, and take him back to Russia and do like a modern Nuremberg against Yeah, do them. a show trial. And, you know, hope for war crimes or something. And they wanted to install a new government. And we now know what they wanted to do. They wanted to install, um, they wanted to install the former leader of Ukraine who fled the country. And because he's been hiding out in Russia ever since he ran away, after his troop or his uh, his his henchmen, his police, shot a bunch of protesters in different cities in in Ukraine during the Maidan situation. And it didn't scare anybody. It just made people more angry. And he realized, uh oh, I gotta go because I started killing them, and now they're gonna reciprocate. And I remember when that happened. It was like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, it's 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 it just a move of desperation. Like it has, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, if you're a gambling person, I've gambled ninety nine percent of my money away. I'm gonna go all in with the last one percent. And it's like, eh, it didn't work. Okay, time to run. Of course, I've people have shared the video recently of him running and running with no security or anything to his helicopter and fleeing the country. Like it's just you got to get it's, it, it's lonely at the end. Yeah, you got to give this guy Zelensky. I, I don't care. I've had some people that I actually like and are and, and are friends with, and they just you know, oh, he's a comedian. He's just a Jew. He's this. He's that. They just you know just. This guy, I don't care. I don't care what he is. He could be Santa Claus. <laughs> I I gotta respect this guy. He is sticking there. He's he's a res- he is he is one of the more honorable leaders in the past. I don't know in my lifetime that I can think of. Yeah, he's he's not leaving. Like it's his country. He's like he's like Patton. Remember those stories? And they're they're real when they were being strafed. It was in the movie Patton. But it was a real deal. He's like, screw you. He's taking his revolver and shooting at the planes. It's like, I like you got to respect somebody like that. Yeah. I mean, but the, but the, it's, it's leadership. I mean, yep. he's showing that he's not running because the reality is if he ran, which a lot of he's, he's been given every offer in the world from every Western power and whatever. If he ran, would the country fall apart? No. Would the government survive? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Like there's no guarantee there. Um, but the reality is, is during a war, like strong man, if a strong man is in charge, he can convince people to endure a lot of, a lot of pain and suffering. But yeah, to, to zoom back to like, you know, the 30,000 foot view, you know, you've got just a war based on just really bad assumptions across the board. That That's my takeaway is you have a guy who is running a country, Putin, Surrounded by people who are yes men, like there's no other takeaway, other than that they just have an army of yes men, who are convinced into doing things purely out of fear for their own lives or their own livelihoods, and that's the only thing that makes sense to me that explains away so many failures, not on on a macro and a micro level. Um, the intelligence failures are, you know. I don't. I don't know how you even recover from something like that. It just shows you that their intelligence apparatus tells the leadership what they want to believe, or the leadership tells the president what they want to believe. Whatever the situation is, it's it's foobar. Like it's. 
I don't know how you fix that. The, the trust is totally broken there. Um, the same thing with the military. Like one thing, you know, I'll do as quickly as I can. The Russians have been using analog radios combined with cell phones. That's why they haven't taken out the power and, and, and internet infrastructure in Ukraine, except for in certain places, because they need it to communicate. Now, let me re- repeat this. Paul just said that the Russians are using analog radios and cell phones. This is really, really important to, to get your head wrapped around because... Yeah, when I say analog, I mean it's clear over the air. If you have a, if you have a, a ham radio, <laughs> you can tune into it. Think in terms of basic walkie-talkies, okay? Exactly. Just we're not going to make, keep it simple. Yeah, and... You know, you're using regular radio frequencies that people use for radio communications um, in an analog fashion, meaning it's just clear over the air. Now, in the military, going back, at least in our mil- in the U.S. military, going back to the 70s, we were using radios in different capacities, of course. You know, technology is what it is. It's, 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 gone, it's, gone, it's come a long ways since then. But we use digital radios, Today, depending on what unit you're in and, and what your what your uh, roles are, you may have an individual radio just as a regular infantryman, some or you know at least your officer has a radio, um, and the, the radios are all digital. And what, what that means, you know, for the for the layman, all all radios are analog. They all operate in the same frequencies. Digital radios is ultimately just an analog radio. But what what a digital radio means is that there's a little microchip, you know, there's, there's little compu- computer elements in there, little, uh, little, little microprocessors that take the audio, it turns it into to a digital, um, it, it turns analog into digital, and then it will encrypt it. Scrambles it up. It will encrypt it in real time uh, using whatever the encryption protocols are in the radio, and then it will send those bits back out as analog over the wire and then the other radio will then receive it, turn it into digital, decrypt it, and then ultimately turn it back out as analog so you can hear it into actual sounds. And, and in the military, they have all kinds of different protocols and methods for distributing what the encryption keys of the day are going to be. Um, today, the most sophisticated gear that people have, they have a, basically a bunch of switches on, on the radio, um, and it's basically... You program in what your encryption code is. Uh, some radios, it's physical. Others, they put it in on a little, you know, they have little buttons like it's a cell phone from the 90s. Um, so the point is, is that if somebody loses a radio to enemy, they capture it and they're listening, they may only have access to your radio communications for like the next six hours, maybe even the next day at most. Then the encryption codes are going to change. And potentially even the frequency is going to change, and they do this to prevent jamming and other things. And you know, it basically reduces the window that a captured piece of equipment can be useful. Because at the end of the day, you may have their radio, but you still need to figure out what the hell their encryption key is to be able to understand what is coming across. Otherwise, it's just static. So, knowing that, I expected just because it's year 2022 you know normal expectation mind the cliche of saying it's the current year like it is 2022 i expected every military at least like 
their officers and the Air Force and stuff like that and the Navy to have digital radios so they can't be easily spied on them. doesn't mean they can't be spied on, but it's not as easy. No, they're talking over clear analog radio communications. And basically, long story super short, is the greed of certain officers inside the, specifically the head of uh, like the signal corps of the Russian army. Um, he traded $30 million in personal uh, enrichment for the entire, for the compromising of the entire communications for the entire Russian military. This is a scheme that involved private industry, like I said, the head of like the equivalent of their signals corps for their military, as well as the grandson of the uh, highly decorated head of the Russian Air Force during the majority of the Cold War. Like people that should not be easily corrupted, nope. to say the least. Like Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> well, so the reality is, is they got a contract. They were supposed to build these radios that have fairly modern standards. It was supposed to be an entire military-wide change, everything from Navy, Air Force, infantry, whole nine yards, everybody involved. And basically they decided that, hell, we'll just go and buy some crap from China, off the rack, not designed for us, just standard crap from China. When I say crap, I mean, it, literally, it wasn't literally crap, but... You know, it was potentially compromised is the key. <laughs> and they basically packaged it in Russia and, so, and pocketed basically 30% of a contract. Like I said, for approximately $30 million of personal enrichment. So you have the, you have the uh, communications capability of your entire military compromised for $30 million. That is something that just would not fly in the United States. It just wouldn't. $30 million is not enough for people to do something that grand and for enough people to be involved in. I mean, some of these people, you know, they sold their military's operational capabilities away for like hundreds of thousands of dollars on an individual level in some cases. That's really messed up. <laughs> and the fact that there were so many people involved and were able to pull something like this off and they, like, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to consider. And, and I... I you know, kind of tried to relate this to the United States and, you know, everybody obsesses about, you know, the, the amount of spending and the waste and the blah, blah, blah. You know, you have people that rail on about the defense contractors and all this stuff. And some of it's true. I mean, there's, there's waste and fraud and abuse. But at the end of the day in the United States, that's called a profit margin. And your defense contractor puts that in and then, you know... Uh, hey, you were head of the Signal Corps. Congratulations, you've retired after an illustrious 30-year career. We're now going to hire you to uh, sit in a chair and, uh, and, and polish some awards for the next five years so you can pad a giant fat 401k and you can make $400,000 a year as a do-nothing position. And maybe you, some, you can grease some doors so that we can sell some new contracts if they come, if they come up. That's how we do business here. All right. There, they just steal it. Right. And so the difference is like there's where, a difference between padding and outright theft. Exactly. Like where where do you want where padding do you, want you at least you get the product. It's ridiculously expensive, but when it's well, theft, it's you didn't get it. Well, it's 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 ex post facto 
corruption, right? I mean, it's like, <clears throat> is it really corruption or is it just, uh, it's, it's a very generous thank you, right? And, and, and I think it comes down to, it's, it's how do you, where is the honor in, in the military? In the United States, the reality is we still have an almost an entirely volunteer force of people who want to be there. They may not want to do all the missions that are assigned to them, but they want to be there for whatever the reason is. In the Russian military, eh, it seems like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card combined with people are being forced there at gunpoint for the most part. And then the professional class of the Russian military, they view these other people as lesser than because they are. They're the professional class. They're there. They get decent salaries. They, they whatever. And then they abuse these people and they, their morale is even worse. And then they're stealing because where the, where the hell else are you going to be able to make $30 million in, in Russia? Nowhere. Like, you know, $30 million in, in, in Russia five years ago when this happened or 10 years ago, or th- five years ago, I guess. Um, you know, that was probably the equivalent of $300 million in the U.S. economy. I mean, it'd be huge. But in the U.S., would you be willing to compromise your entire military's communications for that kind of a thing? No, it just wouldn't even be possible. Too many people would call you out on it. There, it's like, can I get a piece? Yeah. So it's it's disturbing. Um, and, and, you know, just to ex- expand a little bit on, you know, the kind of general morale problem is in, in training is there, I've read a few things about the Russian Air Force. They fly less than half the hours the, the average U.S. pilot flies per year. That is a huge amount of training. I won't get into the nitty gritty on details and stuff, but that should give you a decent overview. The Russian military does have requirements on how many hours you need to fly to stay qualified and stuff, though. So some of these people were taking part-time jobs flying commercial to keep their hours in to stay to stay combat qualified. I want to run back. Like that is right. You can't have stuff like that happen and be as proficient as everybody at least the propaganda led you on to being. So what I want to round back to is when I said earlier, you know, using law enforcement cuz I did that job. You know, you have to practice, you have to drill for skill. All of this relates to the very basic fundamentals. Um, For those of you who don't know it, I literally did my first radio broadcast in 1968 as a kid. I had a a base station and I could go on for, but you you cut your teeth, you learn things. I was a little kid for all practical purposes. But I've been practicing. I have people say, well, how do you do that? Well, how do you come up with you? Well, welcome to WKRP in Cincinnati. This is Paul Truesdale. I've been doing this for years and years and years, like Rush Limbaugh. No, it was very easy. The guy, that's what he did. I've been preaching. I've been talking, whether I was trying to convince somebody not to shoot me or to put their gun down or to make them under arrest or to buy something. I mean, that's what you do. But the other thing I wanted to share is, a lot of people don't realize I have a degree in communications. <laughs> I have one of the original degrees in communications, 1970s in Wisconsin. I also have an undergraduate degree in political science. I also have the very first interdisciplinary degree, University of Wisconsin, in communicational politics because my original program uh, degree was going to be in computer programming. And all I did was combine programming with communications and politics. And I created a thing called the super voter, which is what, they, that's not what we called it then, but I came up with a name for, you could predict 
predictive analysis. Geez, is it any surprise that I'm a forecaster? Predictive analysis for elections using now it's called super voters. Carl Rove made himself famous for that. You had various other people. It's, everybody does it now. It's, it's called big tech. Point being, I was on the cutting edge of that with IBM punch cards. That's a, that's a fact. I'm not going to BS. That's the truth. So when we look at communications, and you look at the Russians, when we look at things such as um, they had their dress uniform, they were being communicated to, this is going to be a, a, a cake, oh, cakewalk. cakewalk. If you see these people and they don't have the training, well, we don't need it. I, what we have, I think, between you and I and and all of our sources, which we will never reveal. I think we have such an incredible, deep, interesting ability to evaluate things. I'm not looking at the the arm and the leg that's blown off. I'm looking at, hey, you, but you're you're fantastic at this. There's no optics on that gun. Those are iron sights. What they like? How about the pilot that has GPS yes. with with a C clamp? I mean. Most people, oh, look at all the tanks are blown up. No, it's how the tanks have been blown up. It's, oh, they have, they have devices on them to keep missiles from coming in. It's not working. I mean, we could go on for hours on this stuff. And we've already been, we're long in a tooth on this. We're at 90 minutes almost on this. But it's, these are things that, gosh, do you, you think journalists would ever report on? I mean, <laughs> there, there are a dozen Pulitzers in this if somebody cared enough to to write it. Everybody will go after the humanitarian stories, and, and, and you, those are interweaved in this. I mean, you know, for every dead so- picture of a dead soldier you see, whether it's Ukrainian or Russian, every civilian crushed underneath a collapsed yeah. building. It, there's, there's a story. There's, a there's story. lives. There's families. There's loss. It's horrible. Yeah, it is. And all of it's interweaved. But the thing, so, so to, to, to look at things like, like what I said in the beginning, you don't really know how you can put on, you can, you can be the peacock, right? You can be the big col- colorful. Oh, you're a big bird. Very scary until you've seen it fight. And then it's like, Oh, I just no, no big deal. Like peck its eyes out. It doesn't have a great fighting capacity, but it sure puts on a big show. And that's the thing that is the important part is what are the takeaways from all of this? One Russian military made, very, the, the Russian uh, entire defense force, period. Uh, ironic that we, we used to call them, we used to call, at least in the United States, the, the Department of War. Yeah, well, it's what it's, it is. <laughs> it's what it is. It's for war making. Or, you know, wh- whether it's defense or offense. Now everybody calls it all. It's your, it's your defense ministry. It's your defense department. It's funny how, how words change to change public perception about different institutions. But... Yeah, it used to be sticks and stones will break your bones and words will never harm you. Now it's the complete opposite. So. Yeah. So, you know, when I mentioned the how does your equipment survive contact with the enemy, that's one thing that a lot of people have talked about for many, many, many years. And I guess this is all, all we'll, we'll wrap it up with this. For years and years and years, the propaganda since, since the Cold War and all of this kind of runs off of World War II, really, in, in, all, in all honesty. Um, Russian tanks, man, they're amazing. Oh, they're, they're doctrine. Oh, they just have so many tanks. Big scary bear. They have more tanks than they know what to do with. They just, they, they keep making them and they park them in the woods and then 
They're always there as a reserve force when they need them. Oh, they're just amazing. Well, we do the same thing. We've been making between 11 and 30 Abrams every month since like February of 1980 from the <laughs> same factory in Lima, Ohio. Why? Because it's expensive as shit to start up a manufacturing line. It's very cheap to just keep making them, yep. especially when you sell them. And guess what we do? We put them in the desert. We do the same thing. But, you know, one, one of the things that's very important, they need, they need to be in Fort Hood because if we took them to Guam, Guam would probably tip over from the weight. Uh, I'm pretty sure. The think, genius, do you think anybody knows what we're talking about? I'm pretty sure the genius that said that was Hank Johnson. Um, no. <laughs> Sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, look up Hank away. Johnson. Go to YouTube and look up a Hank Johnson, congressman in Guam. You have a great laugh. Yeah, it's. Uh, he was legit. You know that. He was oh, le- I mean, totally legit. You know he was legit when you when you look at the uh, the military the representative for the military and the look on his face was how do I respond is that a joke or not? Yeah. Anyways, sad moment in, in American politics. Um, so there's been this this huge mystique around how amazing the Russian tanks are, and it goes back to World War II. It goes back to the T thirty four. The T thirty four has this amazing reputation of being. Oh, the tank that they were able to mass produce and it it beat the German Tigers and the the Panzers and it just is an amazing thing. Well, in all reality, the T-34, pardon my French, is a giant pile of shit. Um, it worked really well because guess what? They made a lot of them. When, when they go and deploy uh, troops or uh, tanks and their crews to maneuver um, like from the Urals to Kharkiv, Ukraine, a name that you'll hear a lot as it's in the news given this war. Um, when they send hundreds of tanks to go to the front line and the route is from the Urals to Kharkiv and half of them break down on the way, you got a problem. Anyways, um, when your top speed of your tank is between 30 and 40 kilometers per hour, but you don't put rubber on the drive wheels for your, for your tank uh, treads and your max speed is 8, you know you got a problem. Anyways, it has this amazing mystique because it's the tank that won the war. The reality is, you know, in all honesty, the Sherman was probably the best tank of the war. Mass-produced, worked pretty damn well, easy to repair, simple to operate. It did the job. Anyways, tank uh, obsession stuff aside, um, everybody's obsessed. Oh, the T-72, the... Well, in, in the modern tanks that, people, that the Russians use, the T-72, the T-80, the T-90, and then they have this new thing called the T-14. It's uh, the Armada. And everybody was talking about, oh, the Russians are going to deploy the, the scary new Armada tanks. No, they're not. They've made like 10 of them. It's an R&D prototype that they won't even caught fire during a parade. It's not ready for combat duty. <laughs> Nobody talks about that. No, of course not. Everybody always talks about your... It's funny how propaganda, successes, hide your, hide, your, hide your fails, promote your successes, show the good stories, whatever. It is It is funny, though, that things like that and during the Cold War, like it would be front-page news making fun of tank catches fire at parade. Instead which today, which make, going back to what we said in the beginning, makes you wonder who, who the hell is being... Who's paying the, the, our media sometimes? I think it's also just a... The world has changed. Everybody, oh, shove your failures under the rug. Don't meme, meme, meme. Yeah, meme, meme. positive. TLDR, TLD. Yep. Yeah, 
Well, in any case, so there, then these tanks are all over the world, though. This is the funny part about about this kind of uh, propaganda, I guess, is the only, the only word I can conjure up to describe it. These tanks are all over the world. They're in Libya. They're in Egypt. They're in Iraq. They're in India. They're in China. They're, they're everywhere. They're, every conflict that has been fought by a, a non-first world country for the past 70 years has been fought with Russian tanks somewhere in the fray. They get blown up like anything else. Well, the story that everybody was told was that these were the monkey variants. That's an official term. And basically what it means is these are easier to use. They don't have as good armor. Um, they don't have the fancy electronics, stuff like that. So people who don't, don't need as much training to use them, right? They're mon- just think of it like, a, you know, put, a, put enough monkeys in front of typewriters, they'll write Shakespeare, you know? You don't need as much sophisticated, dedicated training to use them. But they also don't have all the fancy... Uh, the fancy stuff that you would want on it if you were and that's a German that's a uh, German that's a Russian term so yes. don't yeah, don't I, don't don't shoot us for this for God's sakes well no I mean it's just that's 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 what they call it in the military so these these simpler variants are the ones that they export which makes sense higher profit margins for defense exports oh, blah 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 of course so that was always the excuse the real Russian equipment it's it's different trust us <laughs> yeah well obviously like and that may be the case in, in for some things but it's it's it's, it's a fairy tale. The reality is, to what you were pointing to probably 30 minutes ago now, the Russian tanks, one of their, one of their core elements of their doctrine is they want to field more tanks. They, they believe in tank warfare being a huge decisive force multiplier for them. So one of the ways you do that is you reduce the amount of people you need to run a tank. So for a Russian tank, you have three people. You have commander, you have gunner, and you have your driver. Three people. U.S. tanks, you have four. You have one extra guy, and he does the loading. So you might ask yourself, how the hell do the Russian tanks get loaded? Aha, important piece of information that explains a lot of what you might be seeing in pictures. You might see pictures of tank turrets all over the place, like it's a, uh, uh, what is it, shot put. Like somebody just threw it as far as they could. Champagne cork. Exactly. Well, yeah. So in order to reduce one, one person per tank, the thing the Russians have done going back 50, over 50 years is they have a carousel autoloading system. So you gunner shoots, and then there's a whole big mechanism in the, in the tank that takes another shell, loads it into the rack, puts it into the, into the chamber, closes it. It's all automated. So for those of you who are not familiar with what a carousel is, think in terms of a lazy Susan. I don't care how you think it, just it revolves. Okay, so next one comes in, we grab, we load, we go. Yeah, so that reduces one person you need in the tank. Now the obvious downside in this is that tank shells have explosives, in it, obviously. They go boom. In U.S. tanks, we have um, dedicated, highly armored compartments with blowout panels on them so the ammunition stays separate from where the people are so that if the ammo goes boom it blows out in a direction that's safe and is less likely to harm the crew and in some cases it's also not as likely to totally destroy the tank and disable it so the people in the tank can actually like maneuver away if, if you're lucky in the russians case the ammo is literally inside the tank with the guys 
and it's in this carousel. Of course, it, it has is. to be has to be close to loading it into the, yeah. into the, into the uh, tank cannon. Well, the downside of this is the way all these carousels are designed is they're cylindrical, obviously, because the tank spins. It's got to go. It's got to move with the turret. And basically, what you get is you get a giant bomb. The tank is a giant bomb at the end of the day. It's not. I. I. You could not pay me enough to drive one of these into 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 battle anywhere in the world. I would be freaking out the entire time because the problem is that means the most armored place in the tank absolutely has to be around the turret. Well, the problem with that is is basic physics. It's got to move. Like, you know, I, you you can use your imagination with how well that's going to be protected. There's all kinds of methods and things you can do to secure them, but at the end of the day, your tank is only as secure as its, inabil- as its ability to prevent your ammo from exploding and then igniting everything on fire. So that's why you get shot put tank turrets because when the turret or the, uh, the, the compartment is breached by anti-tank weapons that shoot molten metal inside through a whole molten metal hole through the armor and spray basically like lava all over the place with shrapnel. One goes boom, the whole vehicle goes up like uh, you're a Al-Qaeda suicide bomber and you're screwed. So basically it's been proven all these tanks suffer from the same problem. It goes back to their doctrine been proven on the field once and for all it doesn't matter how amazing the technology is they have a system called a trophy system you can look it up if you want it's effectively a system that's designed to detect and destroy or prevent a missile or uh, incoming threat from actually hitting your tank some of these vehicles have these systems as far as i've seen they basically don't work or if they do work they're very poor or something i don't know um it's not saving them let's just say that they have all this stuff called explosive reactive armor when you look at these tanks they look like little bricks all around the outside of the tanks some of them are big some of them are small it depends on what variant you get that stuff is literally explosive and it's designed to basically when if it gets hit by a missile it itself explodes because of the explosive reaction of the actual missile and it blows it away from the hull of the tank, um, prevents that molten metal from starting to penetrate the armor. There's a lot of little things, but the reality is, is, does it work? Well, look at the numbers. You've got, according to open source intelligence, somewhere around 300 main battle tanks and 1,200 other slightly or up-armored vehicles destroyed in the field in the better part, in, in the better part of a month from mainly small arms capable weapons meaning it's mind boggling anti tank guided missiles and anti tank missiles mm-hmm. mainly carried by just normal people and obviously some of this is tank warfare some of this is drones and stuff but the bulk of this obviously is being done by people on the ground running around professional doing, military as well as the guy that ran the flower shop exactly and the thing the Russia, the Ukrainians have obviously, they understand. And if you know your Roman history, you'll know about a guy during the Second Punic War. He was a leader by the name of Fabian. Mm-hmm. 
Fabian is famous because we still name a type of uh, combat tactic after him called Fabian tactics. This is the reason why we talked about the Romans before I talked about the legions. So let's, let's, let's enlighten everybody about Fabian. So during the Second Punic War, Hannibal was beating the absolute shit out of the Romans. Like He, he, he was going to win if the Romans st- stuck to the same tactics. This guy Fabian came along and he was put in charge of the Roman legions and was implored to please solve the Hannibal problem for us. And I think After, most people think of Hannibal and the elephants and going over the Alps, and that's about all they ever know about it. Yeah. It's, it's a real person. And he's a real person, and he's probably one of the greatest generals, even though he lost. He's definitely one of the greatest generals of all time. I mean, Genghis, same thing, right? I mean, you'd have to... Not as successful. Not as successful, but he, he did a... He, <laughs> he was an interesting cat. So the Romans were getting beat badly, and they lost multiple major battles with him, caught, got, got caught off guard. Like, the guy was, of his era, legitimately a genius. And, and he was going for the kill. And Fabian had to do something because he knew everybody that came before him, like, they failed. So his idea was, okay, well, just, we're not going to fight him. We're going to tie him up in the field, and we're going to waste their resources, and we're going to waste their time. And, and he was... Uh, he was viewed very poorly by the Romans because of his decision. They tried to convince him to change his tactics, and eventually he was uh, removed from his duty. I think he was a consul, if, if memory serves correct. And he, his term was up, and he was replaced with somebody who would take the fight to the Carthaginians. And they raised something like 40 legions, and they got wiped out. Because Fabian was correct. They couldn't figure out how Hannibal was making his decisions or what his tactics were. They couldn't figure out how to match, how to best him in the field. And Fabian was right. Sometimes you just need to wear your enemy down until they get tired and exhausted and they run out of resources, and then you can go for the kill. And that's ultimately what happened. Uh, you know, the Punic, Second Punic War, it, it, it lasted years and years and years. I can't remember the exact number of years. What, two decades or something. Long time. And... Sometimes if you have a superior enemy, you just need to effectively just harass them. Don't, don't fight them in the field. Just harass them. And that's one thing that I, I don't know, you know, I, haven't, I have no intimate knowledge of, of the, I'm sure nobody does for sure, of uh, the Ukrainians' actual battle plans and what they're trying to do. But it's a fantastic way of melding guerrilla and modern warfare together. You know, don't, if, if you've got a superior force, don't go and meet them in the field. Harass them, make them waste their resources. That's one thing we didn't even talk about: is the Russian supply lines for things that are that are the most important, food, fuel, ammunition, basic stuff. They're still bogged down, even to this day. They can't get enough supplies for. They have all this artillery in the field to siege Kiev. Still, they keep getting pushed back and the stuff destroyed because they can't get enough ammunition to the front line to just hold their positions, let alone assault the city. So they're resorting to less advantageous weapons like cruise missiles and things like this. The problem is that stuff's really expensive and you only have so many of them. So the thing is, is these, the, the Fabian tactics of the, of the Ukrainian military are working. They're forcing them to expend increasingly expensive weapons 
and, and people. Because more and more expensive than the weapons are the people. It takes time to train them, and it takes time to gain experience, and, and like you said, to practice those fundamentals so they become second nature to somebody. You know, the ability to just, I see a threat, it's subconscious, you draw and pull your gun on somebody as a cop to get them to freeze and stop what they're doing in the, before you actually have to you know, shoot them and kill them. Because, you know, at the end of the day, your job as a cop is not to actually just kill everybody that looks like a threat. You're not a military. You're not an occupying force. You're there to actually, like, keep the peace. If somebody's doing something stupid, your job is to prevent them from getting to that point. And those little micro things that you learn with years and years of experience get wiped out when you get shot in the head and killed. Yep. And so that's the one thing that's most expensive in a war is people. You can, you can always go into debt and buy more equipment and manufacture it and whatever, but if you run out of people, competent people, people with the will to fight, you're totally, you're SOL. And that's the takeaway from all of this is it's the basics. They have failed to prepare and train on basics, and that is visible in every day of fighting and every piece of information that I see in this entire conflict. Well, I'm Paul Truesdell, and... And I'm Paul Truesdell. And we did this today for one reason and one reason only. This is a very, very long podcast. We did this because we're with Fixed Cost Financial. I'm the founder. Paul is the uh, acting, really, CEO, though I technically have the title. He's our chief technology officer. He's my right-hand man. And this is what we do. And there's no way that we're going to disclose to you how we manage money in our discussions. We can't do that. But this gives you an example of what we talk about every day. This is the kind of research, the kind of in-depth, the way we look at things differently. And to be very blunt with you, I've had more than enough people, and we've shared this back and forth, that, you know, well, you, what, what, what do you know about this war? Well, how would you know things? So we give you a little bit of a background, but everything comes down to the basics, doesn't it? Yeah, this is a, this is a, little, a little puddle. Compared, this is just compared, a little tiny bit of what we've talked about and, and researched. It's just a little, uh, little little teaser of like how it's very it's very wars are complicated, people are complicated. It's a huge topic, and the thing is, it's on the other side of the world, and most people don't know anything about it. And I can tell you, as much familiarity with it as I do have, the past couple of weeks and doing research and 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 trying to figure things out has been immensely enlightening even as somebody that I thought I had a good handle on what was going on. And but at the same time, which I've always said, and I'm going to repeat this for all of you, I have my seven coils. I talk about mindset, physical, emotional, intellectual relationship, financial and risk. There's a reason why I do it. These are the fundamentals. I talk about all the all the time. You know, the guy with a billion dollars who dies at 60, is he really wealthy? compared to the guy that's got $100 million and lives to age 90 or 100? I, I, you know what? I'll, you can have the other $900 million. I'll take the $100 million. I'd rather live to 90. You know, I, I mean this very sincerely. It's, it's strength, endurance, and flexibility training with natural nutrition, hydration, everything in moderation. But what is one of the key things there? It's habit. It's repetition. It's habit. It's repetition. It's doing it day in and day out. And what we're learning is the Russians don't, have, we believe, the habit, the military training, the maintenance, the preparation to fight the, the war they need to fight. They have bad intel. And when, when the king is out there, we've talked about Putin a lot. We've done a lot of psychological analysis on Putin. I think 
I, I just, a lot of these Trumpsters, I just want to scream. Guys, if you're, the, if you're a, a, a tyrant, and we, we kind of got this thing, he's just got yes men around him. And the, the purging, that's another thing. People don't know what the purges are. They don't know about the, we could go on and talk all about the purges that have taken place in Russia. And that's a whole nother segment that we could get into. Well, yeah, but the oligarchs. Does, and This guy does not tolerate political dissent. It is not part of a preconceived plan to create confusion among the populace. If you're not part of, of controlled dissent, you're going to jail. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality. Like it's, this isn't, this isn't like a, this isn't a, a place with real, with any free speech or anything. This is, it's weird because it's open. Like up until a couple of weeks ago, you could travel there. You could talk to people. These people have access to the internet, but they're also caged at the same time. It's very strange. And there's things, there's phrases I've used in the past, you know, this kabuki theater and all that kind of stuff. There's just, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So that's what we did. We wanted to share with you, if you got through the whole thing, this is what we do. This is who we are. This is, um, this has been intense. And we just scratched a little tiny fraction of the surface that we could get into. We'll get into more of this. Most of this information is available to our clients. If you're a client of Fixed Cost Financial, um, you're getting this stuff. For those of you who are on the Paul Truesdale podcast, you got just a little touch of the kind of depth that we get into with that. We're out of here. Any final words? I guess the last thing I'd say is just don't make knee-jerk assumptions. Things are usually simpler and also way more complicated than they look at on the surface. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it is what it is. Um, and if you don't know what's going on, there's no need to get emotionally upset about it. Don't make an ass out of yourself. It just is what it is. It's not something that's important to most people. So don't get, don't get worked up about it. Yes, as my mother, the late Mrs. Truesdale said, Paul, sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're stupid than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. With that, we're out of here. Hasta luego. See you mañana. We'll be back on Friday.
This concludes the public version of the Paul Truesdell podcast. The rest of the story is available to friends of Paul Truesdell. To become a friend, go to paultruesdell.com and complete the contact form. Are you still here? Why? The good stuff is on paultruesdell.com. The rest of the story is available to friends of Paul Truesdell. To become a friend, go to paultruesdell.com and complete the contact form. Now get going. Go over to paultruesdell.com and become a friend. Go. Get. Now. This is Matthew. What's the matter with you? Joanna and Brian told you what to do. What are you waiting for? Okay. One more time. Go to paultruesdell.com. Click on contact. Complete the form. Become a friend. Crazy simple stupid easy.